0: Turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 20. While you're turning there, if someone were to ask you this morning to share what you would consider your most valuable possession, what would it be? Well, for those of you who own houses, you would probably say, well, my home. I went on Zillow earlier this week, and I found my house has gone up X amount of uh, dollars in the last uh, few months, and boy, housing prices, especially around Tucson, are going through the roof. So maybe that's what you would consider your most valuable possession. Still, those of you who maybe rent, don't own a home, would point to your car. I mean, that is a significant investment. And the more you put into maintenance, the more uh, seemingly valuable that investment seems to be. Certainly beats hitchhiking, right? And so some of us would point to uh, a big ticket item, like an automobile, as our most valuable possession. But you know, the Bible says that all of us have a possession that is far more valuable than anything you can walk into at the end of a long day or park in a garage at night. The most valuable possession that you and I have is described for us in the book of Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 1. There we read this, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, loving favor rather than silver and gold. You see, the most valuable thing, the most lasting thing, the most, dare I say, powerful thing you and I possess is our good name, our reputation. We might even use the word our credibility, and boy, there are few areas where the issue of credibility comes to the surface more powerfully than in our walk with God. You know, it's a wonderful day in our walk with Christ when someone comes up to us and says, why are you so different? Why do you seem to have peace and stability in this world uh, where the motto of most people is when in fear or in doubt, run in circles, scream and shout. Uh, You know, it seems like the more we look at what's happening in the news today, the more unstable society seems to be. There's an awful lot of people out there without that stability. If you have the peace of Christ in your life, people will look at you and they'll say, wow, that's really different. But conversely, there are those awful moments when someone who doesn't know the Lord looks at us and says, why in the world should I listen to you? about a relationship with God. Your life seems like a flaming mess. Well, there we see just what a powerful issue credibility really is. And it was a powerful issue even during the ministry of Jesus. And for the next few minutes in Luke chapter 20, we're going to get up close and personal with the credibility of Christ in a study that we could call, Why Should We Listen to Jesus?, we're going to see Jesus' credibility called on the carpet by some fairly heavy hitters in his day and age, and we're going to see how he responds. And as we take a look at the credibility of Christ, we're going to see that Jesus has given us a foundation for living that will not fail us, no matter how fearful, no matter how overwhelming, no matter how chaotic our circumstances are, might seem to be. We pick things up in Luke chapter 20 and verse 1. We are told, now it happened on one of those days as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel that the chief priests and the scribes together with the elders confronted him and spoke to him saying, tell us by what authority are you doing these things or who is he who gave you this authority? Now, a few things we need to understand if we're going to follow along with the drama that is rising here. Notice it says, now it happened on one of those days. Now, Bible study 101. When you go through the word of God and you come across a phrase like those days, we should slow down and ask ourselves the question, what days? What is the circumstance in which these events are taking place? Well, the those days being referred to here were dramatic days indeed. As you know, Jesus is entering into the final week that he would spend that would lead to his crucifixion. The shadow of the cross is looming larger and larger on his personal horizon. Now, notice it says, it happened on one of those days, as he taught people in the temple and preached the gospel. (laughs) You know, I think that's a pretty significant thing to understand, especially in light of of the fact that Jesus knew his days were numbered. Now, I don't know if you've been in a situation where someone receives a diagnosis that they have a fatal disease. You know We've gone through a battle with cancer over the last year or so, and, and you know, we got this uh, layout of what would happen if uh, the particular brand of cancer that I had went untreated. They said, you got five years if we don't treat this thing. You know, I always thought that was kind of amusing because doctors will say you got five years to live, but the reality is none of us know how much longer we have to live. You could be the most healthy, kale-eating, crunches-in-the-morning, aerobic-addicted individual, and it's still not going to help you if you get hit by a bus later today. You know, the Bible says that the length of our lives is like a morning fog. First you see it, and then it's gone no guarantees that we've even got it tomorrow. Boy, on the optimistic side, uh, there's no prophecy of Scripture that needs to be fulfilled before Jesus could rapture us out of this place. And the more I look at this world, the more I'm thinking that's a really good idea. Highly in favor of that. But the bottom line is this. None of us knows how much time we have, but Jesus did. Understand something. He knew what God's plan was. He knew the countdown clock was ticking and boy when that countdown clock starts to tick you start to ask yourself some pretty important questions if i only have a limited amount of time to spend in this world what am i going to spend my time doing if say for instance a doctor came up to you heaven forbid and said you got a week to live what would you do with that week what would you invest it doing Notice what Jesus invests his final days doing. He taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel. <laughs> you know, uh, we look at that and we go, wow, you know, if I had a week to live, you know, I'd go through my bucket list. I'd want to visit Tahiti. I'd want to climb Mount Everest. I want to, You know, all these things that, that we dream about doing. But notice Jesus doesn't deviate from his mission. Why? Because Jesus, I think, understands something we need to understand. Eternity, in the words of an old German proverb, is a long bargain. The the, the one who lives in light of eternity is the truly wise man or woman. There's an old saying, there is only one life will soon be passed. Only what is done in Christ will last. Well, what is the best thing that we can do if we want to be doing things in Christ? May I suggest to you, following Jesus' two priorities here, Notice, he taught the people in the temple. Jesus was invested in impacting the lives of people for eternity. And notice as well, he preached the gospel. Jesus, two priorities in his earthly ministry, even more important than, say, healing people, even more important than, say, demonstrations of his power like walking on the water, Even more important than even putting demons in their place was what? Connecting people with the Word of God. Now, if you and I identify as being a Christian, you know what the word Christian means? It means a little Christ. It means someone who lives their life like Jesus does. Can I ask you a question? Do we share those same two priorities? Do we live our lives in such a way that we invest in people and the principles of God's Word. It only makes sense because there are only two things that you and I can encounter in this life that will last forever, and that is the Word of God and people. The rest of it is all going to burn, if you will. So we see Jesus doing this with his final week. And so Jesus is laser-focused on this. But isn't it funny, when we get laser-focused on simply doing what the Lord has called us to do, inevitably, there comes distraction. There's going to come somebody that's going to want to change the subject, get your eyes focused onto someone else. And Jesus was no exception to this rule. We're told the chief priests and the scribes, together with the elders, confronted him. Now, understand what a heavy-hitter group you are dealing with here. He isn't just dealing with minor critics from the sticks here. He is dealing with three different kinds of individuals. Number one, the chief priests, the individuals who literally were in charge of everything that took place in the absolute epicenter of Jewish, not only spiritual life, but Jewish pride. That is the temple itself. These were, as we have seen before, members of the sect of the Sadducees. They were the religious liberals, if you will, of their day. They denied the supernatural. They denied there was an afterlife. They believed in keeping up these traditions because it was an important thing to do so societally, and it had a a side benefit of lining their pockets with some pretty major cash. These were the upper crust, the aristocracy, we would call them the elite in our day. The chief priests and the scribes. Now, the scribes were individuals who were considered the scholars of that day, but scholars with an interesting bent. They were the religious conservatives, if you will, of that day. If the Sadducees would represent in our culture, say, like the individuals who would tend to vote Democrat, the scribes would be those that would tend to, decide on the things the side of things a republican they were the individuals that were amazingly committed maybe more committed than you and me to studying God's word why would I say that well if you were a scribe among other things uh, to pass your scribe school test you would not only have to be literate not a whole lot of people at least the majority of people were literate in that day but you would also have to be so committed to God's word, you would have had to have taken what we would call the Old Testament and memorized it. How are you doing on Bible memory these days? Well, I think I got through the Lord's Prayer once. Got John 3.16 down. Boy, I've gone to enough funerals that I've got Psalm 23, the Lord's my shepherd under my belt. Could you imagine being so committed to God's word? You memorize the whole thing. These were not individuals that were country bumpkins. They they not only had memorized God's word, they had also memorized the rabbi's interpretation of God's word. You wanted to find out anything about God and the things of God, you'd go to these guys. And notice, together with the elders. Now, uh, when the Bible refers to the elders in this sense, it's referring to the elders with a capital E. Remember the, the setting, the Passover Seder celebration is coming up. Passover in Jerusalem was a place where the population of Jerusalem would swell almost to a million people. And anybody was anybody in Israel would be there, including the elders of the people. The elders of the people is a reference to the Jewish ruling Sanhedrin, 70 individuals who would be the rough equivalent of the United States Senate. And so you put this together. You've got the religious liberals, you've got the religious conservatives, you've got the political power brokers. They all come to Jesus with one question in mind. They confront him and spoke to him saying, tell us by what authority are you doing these things or who gave you this authority? Now, one of the great giveaways that you are dealing with an incredibly religious person as opposed to someone who has a relationship with God is man this is their bread and butter issue they really don't care so much what you say they really care who gave you the right to say it and so you know those who who are afflicted with this kind of uh, spiritual uh, affliction uh, will say things like well where did you study you know who ordained you yeah it's funny uh, how different uh, Calvary Chapel is in terms of uh, this idea of authority. Uh, when I got involved with ministry, I went to Talbot Seminary and, you know, studied there for three years to get my master's degree in biblical languages and theology. And there was a reason for that. I, I remember having a conversation with my, at that point, non-believing dad, who was an attorney, and he said to me, "Why should I listen to you? You've never studied." look, I'm an attorney. I had to go to three years of law school. I had to pass the bar in order to give people advice about law. Why should I listen to someone like you? You've never studied. I went, boy, he's got a point. And so a large motivation for me going to seminary was to be able to have the credibility to be able to connect God's truth with this man who who I loved so much, my own dad, wanting to have that place of respect so that at least he'd be Uh, open to receiving what I had to say about God. Funny thing, I I jumped through all those hoops and it didn't really change him at all. He found another reason not to listen to me about Christ, at least at that point in his life. Eventually he came to know the Lord, but after a long battle. You know, it's funny, uh, when I went on staff at Calvary Costa Mesa, having your uh, ducks in a row in a sense, having the right people give you the thumbs up as far as ministry was concerned, Uh, was a big deal in the neck of the church woods that I came out of. You know, if you wanted to be ordained, for instance, in uh, the uh, churches that I was involved with, I was uh, a youth pastor at an offshoot of John MacArthur's church in Southern California. Uh, If you want to be ordained, first of all, you had to take an an ordination exam. Uh, You you had to, uh, they give you a book about that thick with issues that you had to discuss and had to have uh, in place. And then you would take a written exam on that material. But wait, it didn't end there. You'd have an ordination committee who would then give you an oral exam. They could drill you on anything in this huge amount of data that you had to have committed to your mind. And if you passed that, then you could preach an ordination sermon. And your ordination committee, that was made up of seminary professors and pastors, would sit in the front row, scowling at you and shaking their heads and going, No, no, no. And, and, and if they thought that you weren't a uh, deadly danger to the body of Christ, they would then and only then ordain you. That's what ordination was all about. And, you know, I thought, well, you know, you got to jump through these hoops and you got to have the credibility. And so when I went on staff at Costa Mesa, I set up my office. And like every other office I had, I had my library books in the back, you know, on my, my, my bookshelf. You know, when you, you walk into a, a pastor's office, they seem to always have the books up on the bookshelf. And one of the most convicting questions is if you read all those books, never ask a pastor that if you want an honest answer. But I had my books up there. And then I had my degrees on the wall. You know, I put the degrees up on the wall, just what I did. And I remember the first guy that I was given as a counseling appointment at Costa Base. A guy comes in, sits down, and he starts sharing his problem with me, but he starts looking over my shoulder up at the wall. And finally, he, his sharing about his problem kind of petered out. He sort of just stared straight ahead. And I said, is everything all right? He goes, well, you know, I, I I I see up here on the wall your degree from seminary. You went to seminary? I said, yeah, yeah, I went to seminary. And he said, so you mean you had to go to school to learn how to minister to people? Yeah, I said, yeah, I guess, in a manner of speaking. That's, that's why I did that. And he starts to get up to leave me. I said, what's wrong? And he goes, well, you must not be very anointed by God if you had to go to school to figure out how to minister to people. <laughs> At that moment, I had this thought cross my mind. Toto, I'm not in Kansas anymore. The guy kind of had a point. All the schooling in the world, all the attaboys and thumbs up, Don't amount to a hill of beans in our lives if the Lord isn't in our hearts. If we don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, if we don't have a life, in a sense, worth emulating, as they say, if it doesn't work at home, don't export it. But that wasn't where these people are coming from. They were all over this idea of authority. Who gave you the authority to do these things? Now, what things are being referred to here? The biggie, the, 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 the kicker. The thing that really frosted and galvanized the opposition against Jesus. Do you remember what it is? It was him going into the temple and seeing the people that were selling sacrifices and taking advantage of the sincere spiritual convictions of even the poorest of the poor and making a quick buck off of that in order for people to be able to sacrifice and worship God remember how Jesus dealt with that? He made a whip out of some cords there. He turned over the money changers' temple and drove them out saying, my house shall be a place of prayer for all nations, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. These religious charlatans had set up shop in what was called the court of the Gentiles, the place where outreach was supposed to take place. They were peddling their wares right there, presenting the worst side of religiosity where the best side should have been seen. Secondly, Jesus said, you've turned it into a den of thieves. He was quoting Jeremiah chapter 7 where the people back in Jeremiah's day believed that they were impervious to judgment because they had the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord would protect them, even though their lives were just a train wreck spiritually and morally and personally. They had no relationship with God at all, but they put their faith and trust in that building. And back in Jeremiah chapter 7, God said, that's not going to save you. And it didn't. The Babylonians took down Solomon's temple when the seven wonders of the ancient world was raised to the ground because the people didn't have a heart for God. And so when Jesus points this out again, he says, you guys are like Jeremiah's seven poster children here. You better believe that irritated these people. You can't be talking to us. We learned those lessons. We're not idolaters like them. Oh, really? Oh, sure, they weren't bowing down to ugly images straight off of Easter Island, but they were worshiping the mean green, and it bothered them that Jesus put his finger on the one thing they didn't want him to touch their source of supply their source of credibility jesus had indicted the very foundation of what they called their religiosity in that day and so (laughs) they said who gave you the authority to do that jesus answers telling he said to them i will also ask you one thing and you answer me the baptism of john Was it from heaven or from men? Now, here we see Jesus answering a question with a question. Have you ever had someone do that to you? What was your emotional reaction to that, honestly? When people answer a question with a question, I tend to get irritated. Why? Because they're forcing me to do the one thing most of us really don't like to do, think, really think. You know, we, we, we kind of like to have our assumptions unchallenged. And, and so when you lead with a question, boy, I'll tell you, it really gets the wheels turning. And, and I found this to be a great tool in personal evangelism. You know, when someone, uh, say, you know, I get into a, a, a conversation, and you know, with me, you know, if I'm out in any kind of social situation, whether it's on the golf course or ball game or something like that, a, a, a gathering, inevitably someone will ask me the golden question, what do you do for a living? And when they find out I'm a pastor, sometimes you find out you're talking to another believer and the fellowship's awesome, but sometimes you find that you're dealing with a person who's had a less than positive experience with out of the cloth. And it's on like Donkey Kong. And the questions start coming hot and heavy. You know, well, how can you believe there's a God when there's evil in this world? You don't mean to tell me you think God made the heavens and the earth in six days. You're not one of those weirdos. You don't think your way is the only way to God. Oh, well, how can you believe the Bible? Everybody knows it's been changed and the questions start coming. You know, I discovered that You know, rather than uh, jump in, and and it's a real temptation for me to want to answer those questions. After all, you know, we do a Reason for Hope, a Bible question and answer program every day. That's kind of the cloth from which I'm cut. I have discovered that it's far more effective for me, you know, when someone starts peppering you with these questions. What about, what about, what about? Just grab one out of the air. Take one of them and say, okay, uh, your question, if Jesus is the only way to God— Uh, what about the one who never heard? If I were to answer that question to your satisfaction, would you consider giving your life to Jesus? And then let the silence fill the air. (laughs) Jesus, we are told, didn't answer them a thing. They reasoned among themselves, saying if we say from heaven, remember they're talking about the baptism of John, was it from heaven or men? He will say, why did you not believe him? And if we say "From men, all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. You'd say, oh, my gosh. This guy's not only answered a question with a question, he's using what they call in philosophy circles, or rhetorical circles, the Socratic method. Something that philosopher Socrates used. He would ask questions about people, about their views of reality. Remember, uh, Socrates was so popular by answering questions with questions, he ended up uh, being given some poison to drink by the people that he did that to. It's not really the greatest way to make friends and influence people. But the other thing about this was Jesus' question, his question, answering their question, was almost like the unanswerable question in their mind. Kind of like the uh, politician gets asked, Senator, how long has it been since you stopped beating your wife? I mean, well, there, there, is there any good answer to that question? You know, it's, it's like that horrible day, husbands, out there, when your, your uh, wife asks, does this dress make me look fat? There's no good, good answer, right, to that question. He said, there's no good answer to this question. If we say from heaven, if we think John the Baptist is really a servant of God, John testified to me, why don't you believe him? But if we say that it was from men, boy, all the people are not only going to uh, cause our popularity ratings to, to plummet; they're probably going to stone us. They're persuaded that John's a prophet. So they answered, "They did not know where it was from." And Jesus said to them, "Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things." <laughs> Whoa! Wait a minute. Why doesn't Jesus jump in at this point and tell them what his authority was, what his credibility was? If there was ever anybody who had the right and the authority and the wisdom to be able to do that, it was Jesus. So why doesn't Jesus answer? Because Jesus understood something. There's an old saying, a man convinced against his will... Is of the same opinion still they weren't lacking in knowledge of who Jesus was they understood who Jesus was backwards and forwards as a matter of fact we put this together with the other gospel accounts among other things that had happened by this time was that Lazarus one of Jesus best friends had been raised from the dead publicly In the presence of many of the followers of not just the scribes, but also the religious leaders, they knew that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And you know, if I were in that set of circumstances, maybe you're thinking the same thing, if there was somebody who I was doubtful about, about their spirituality, and they actually raised someone from the dead, I might rethink my convictions at that point. I'm like, well, maybe I'm wrong about all of this. What was their response? They decided not just that they had to get rid of Jesus, because if he kept doing these things by their lights, you can read all about this in John chapter 11, then everybody is going to follow him, and and then the Romans are going to come and take away our place in our government. You know, this thing's going to get out of hand, the Romans are going to come in, and all people could get hurt. But even more importantly, our nice, cushy existence could be threatened as well. Either he goes or we go, and we're not going anywhere. In fact, one of them, the high priest at that time, a guy named Caiaphas, said, let one man die for the people. He didn't even realize what he was saying. The Bible says he was prophesying, even though he had no idea he was prophesying at that point. You see, Jesus had already presented his credentials to be taken seriously as the Messiah. He had all the credentials necessary to answer the question, who do you think you are going in there and cleansing the temple? Who was he? He was the God. They were worshiping in the temple. He proved it by raising Lazarus from the dead. He was going to prove it ultimately by dying on a cruel Roman cross and rising from the dead himself. You know, these days, there's an awful lot of competing spiritual claims out there. You know, we live in the Internet age. It's just amazing how radically society has changed. From the first day, I heard that there was this thing called America Online. Remember, American online, you've got mail. Well, you can get this stuff called email. I'm old enough to remember first discovering that. And wow, you know, what, you've got mail, you know, and how an exciting thing that was. That was long before Twitter and Facebook and, uh, you know, again, uh, the, the, the different Instagram and all these different things like that. You know, we live in a society where we have more knowledge, more information at our fingertips than ever. And we also live in a society that is more confused than ever. Because with all these competing voices out there, all these truth claims, you can get bombarded by everything from soup to nuts as far as people claiming to have the corner on the spiritual relationship with God. So why do we believe in Jesus? Why do we choose him? I'll tell you, there's one main reason. In fact, in a sermon was done about 100 years ago, it was summed up really beautifully. The, the pastor preached these words. Here is a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman, He grew up in an obscure village, he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30, and then for three years he was an itinerant teacher. He never wrote a book, he never held an office, he never owned a home, he never had a family, he never went to college, he never traveled except in his infancy, more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompanies greatness. He had no credentials but himself. When he was still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed upon a cross between two thieves. His executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth, his seamless robe. When he was dead, he was taken down from the cross and laid in a borrowed grave through the courtesy of a friend. Nineteen wide centuries have come and gone, and today... He is the centerpiece of the human race and the leader of all human progress. I am well within the mark when I say that all the enemies that ever marched, all the navies that were ever built, all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man on this earth as powerfully as has this one solitary life. Why do we believe in Jesus? Understand this. Jesus not only rocked, world. We believe in Jesus because Jesus rocked the world for a reason. He was here to rescue the world. Lost, clueless, helpless people like you and like me. He rescued us by taking the only life that was ever lived without sin, dying on a cruel Roman cross, not for his own sins, not as a bad break, not as a travesty of tyranny, but because he willingly laid himself down as the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John the Baptist said about him. He died in your place and my place and rose from the dead in a moment of history that can be verified to the satisfaction of any fair inquirer for one reason, to reconcile us to God. That's why we believe in Jesus, because he is utterly credible. Can I ask you a question? When people see you're a believer in Jesus, is your testimony credible? Is what you call your relationship with Jesus such a radical encounter with this risen Lord that the only way you can describe the arrangement is to say, I'm a brand new person since I met Jesus. I've been born again since I met Jesus. Or do people look at you and say, if you really know Jesus, the life of God is really in you, why are you so much like everybody else? God calls us to a new and exciting and vibrant different life the apostle Paul said I've been crucified with Christ and I myself no longer live but Christ lives in me the greatest testimony to Jesus credibility is not just what we find in history not just what we find in spirituality but the difference that he makes in our lives personally Is there anything about your life today that is inexplicable apart from the presence of the living Jesus in you? If not, maybe you need to start over. Maybe you've settled for religiosity. Maybe you find yourself more comfortable with the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people rather than simply following Jesus. Who are you following? Who are you demonstrating in your life ultimately? That's what being a Christian is all about. And that's what communion is all about. We're going to be taking a few moments to worship the Lord and remember the sacrifice of Jesus as as we receive the bread and the cup this morning. I want you to take a moment before you do and ask yourself a really important question. Am I doing this religiously just because it's something that is important and it's a routine? Or am I, by taking this bread, saying to God, I believe your son died for me personally, that his body was broken for me, As you take the cup, are you saying, by taking the cup, I believe there was no other way to save me eternally than Jesus, you shedding your blood for me. Those are the only reasons to take communion. Any other reason than remembering the sacrifice of Jesus on your part is not a relationship. It's just religion. You're back over with the chief priests, and the scribes, and the elders of the people. But the good news is Jesus beckons you and me to a higher and more beautiful and more holy and more genuine and more real and more powerful and more transforming relationship with him. That's what we celebrate when we celebrate communion. And if you can't say that's true about you, A, don't take communion. You're making a mockery of it. But B, if you want things to be different, all it takes is simply coming to the risen Jesus who waits for you to turn to him and to say just in a moment of prayer, Lord, I know that my religiosity can't save me. I know that you died for me. And I want to put my faith and my trust not in anything I will ever do for you or anything I've ever done, but only in what you've done for me. Save me now. Pray that simple prayer. Save me now, Lord. The Bible says the one who comes to Jesus, he will in no wise cast out. Then communion is going to mean something to you. So as we worship, let's take a moment to really remember not just the what of communion, but why we're taking it personally. And let's not settle for anything else than Jesus' best blessings for us during this time.